this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the in focus podcast from the hindu i am jacob koshi your host for this episode and i have with me arunava ghosh ceo council on energy environment and water one of india's leading think tank dr ghosh was recently appointed to a high level expert group the only indian set up by un secretary general antonio guterres that is tasked with reviewing greenhouse gas emission norms that non-state actors such as businesses and cities have committed to. We'll also be discussing the latest climate report by the IPCC on what the world needs to do to buffer against climate change and its key implications for India. Welcome, Dr. Ghosh. Arunaba, what does it really mean to, you know, to have a high-level committee that will look at the, you know, the emissions and profile and you know, set standards for non-state actors? Jacob, thanks for having me in your conversation. In one word, the purpose of the high-level expert group on net zero commitments and actions of non-state actors is trust. The world of climate action now is much more dispersed than what might have been the case 30 years ago when the UNFCCC was initially negotiated. And what do I mean by that? On one hand, you have national governments coming out with policies with regards to their their climate actions sometimes those national policies are converted into international commitments and at other times it those national commitments also devolved into what could be done by actors that are not part of the national government that could be state governments city governments companies and so forth sometimes we also observe that where the national governments might not be as ambitious with regards to what needs to happen others might be stepping up at least with regards to their announcements and we saw that in the united states in part with some state governments and some companies etc that promised to continue acting on climate even as the trump administration had withdrawn from the paris agreement so what does this mean it means that there are now many different sources of climate action they could feed into what the national government says or they could lead uh, by example which then gives the confidence to the national governments to go ahead and commit more which means that whatever these other entities the state government city governments companies etc are doing or promising to do needs to be credibly defined credibly monitored and reported and credibly verified only then would we have confidence that these ambitions that are being stated that these plans that are being announced are actually getting followed up with the commensurate action on the ground that we believe would create some degree of trust in the broader sort of multilateral process to keep nudging the action forward so then uh, so does that mean that they will be they will have an entirely different kind of accounting framework in terms of how uh, you know how much have they emitted how much have they committed than what you know countries have because countries also have a reporting framework right so will they be broadly the same or will there be major differences in this you know how, how they report their measurements and how you evaluate their measurements so to say well first of all we would of course want fair degree of consistency in the way emissions are uh, emissions abatement is, is measured and reported but the the approaches might be slightly different first of all under the paris agreement there is what is called the enhanced transparency framework so even country governments have to upgrade their reporting their transparency architecture at home in order to comply with the extra requirements under the paris agreement 
But when it comes to non-state actors, right now, in many cases, there might not even be any kind of requirement at all because they are not signatories to a multilateral agreement. So then the question is, when a company is reporting that I am going to or we are going to reduce emissions by X percent, is that just for that company's actions within its own factory boundaries or is it, you know, scope one, two and three emissions in terms of how those emissions are come through in the consumption of their products? Are we looking at it conglomerate wide? Or are we looking at individual plants? Are we looking at a, a, a conglomerate's operations within a particular country or across their global footprint? All this will require a different kind of way of recording the, these actions, which would be different from how a single country might be reporting. So the, I think the approaches might be slightly different in terms of the, the reporting design and so forth. But it's hard to also prejudge what the final outcome of this exercise would be. Is there any rough estimate as to, for example, in a, let's say India, in India's total emissions, what would be the contribution of non-state actors? Even if, okay, even if there's no India example, what about a US, in, in a US scenario, uh, any country where we have some background to just get a sense of, you know, how critical this sector of, uh, you know, will be in terms of their emissions output? It's a little hard to answer your question the way you've posed it. But if you just think of it sectorally, you know, if you say in a certain country, if if, if greenhouse gas emissions, 40% say come from the power sector. Now, if the power sector is mostly, you know, I mean, of course, power sector will be run by power sector companies. Now, the companies could be state-run companies, they could be private companies. So as soon as you move away from what the country is committing, to seeing can a sector that accounts for 40% of emissions, whether it is state-run coal power plants or privately run coal power plants or privately run renewable energy plants and so forth, you, it automatically becomes a contribution of that non-state actors. But then the question is, who is making the commitment? Is it the national government making the commitment? And then you're relying on the policy framework that the national government comes up with saying that, well, for instance, renewable purchase obligations that we have in India, that power utilities will buy more and more shares of their power from renewable energy companies. Or could it be that in the absence of such a policy, the private companies themselves say that we are going to reduce our emissions by X percent. Similarly, if you look at not the company space, but if you look at city governments. Now, we know that buildings are a major source of uh, energy consumption, whether it's for the embedded carbon in buildings in the form of the cement and the bricks, etc., that go into making a building, but also the, the energy that is consumed in keeping the lights and fans on, the, the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. So this amounts to a massive share of emissions. Now, if you look at a city government's pro emissions profile, then it would come from primarily buildings and transportation because the power might be coming from outside the city limits, but the transportation and the building's consumption is happening within the city limits. So then if the city government says that we are planning to reduce emissions by X percent, you can immediately translate it to what might be those sectors. So the, the, the short answer to your question is, Overall, we know that emissions globally, as the IPCC report that has just come out 
the working group pre-report has just come out, that we need emissions to fall 48% against 2019 levels by 2030. That's a massive reduction. Now, we know the sectors it will have to reduce. It has to come down in power. It has to come down in industry. It has to come down in transportation. The, the shares will vary from country to country, city to city. But who takes the lead first and who gets the action going? That's where the variance might come, whether it comes from top-down national policies or bottom-up sub-national policies. Got it. So uh, the community uh, has just been announced. Have you already set your time frame? That is, when will be your first meetings, etc.? Well, the timeline that the Secretary General has given to the expert group is quite tight because the report has to be ready, hopefully by the by COP27, which gives us only about six to seven months to get it right, which means that, yes, while the group has just been announced just four days ago, we've not met yet, but I would expect that a, that a meeting or a call will happen very, very soon. And it'll have to. Also, the other issue is that there are there is going to be many different types of engagements that will be necessary. It's not just that the expert group meets. It's also the consultations that we'll need to have with member states, with other UN bodies, with companies, with financial institutions, with business networks and industry bodies. We'll also have to engage with the scientific community. So there has to be a significant amount of engagement in addition to the technical work that has to be done to come up with those formats for measuring and reporting. So there'll be a lot of subcommittees, etc. Yes, it's hard to, I mean, of course, that will be in part the decision or at least the guidance and the lead of the chair of the committee of the group, which is Catherine McKenna. But I would think that there would be some kind of either, you can cut it up in different ways, either you look at it in, in the context of different sectors or you look at it in the context of different governance levels, how you deal with regions or how you deal with cities or how you deal with companies. Uh, and an element of also, you know, what kind of reporting benchmarks or baselines are already there for from which we can build. Uh, so you can have a multi-vector um, approach where you start off with everyone following a certain approach to this, but you can keep upgrading as the capacities get built up. Because we have to also recognize that subnational actors and non-state actors are not the same. You know, a company in the United States or in Europe or in Japan is not going to be the same as a, as a small medium enterprise in, in, in India. Uh, so just because their companies are in the private sector doesn't mean everyone will have necessarily the same capability to uh, report and verify. So that is also that differentiation that we all have to consider as we deliberate on this. I don't know, one thing that I found very intriguing was, I believe it's a 12-member committee, right? Or is it 16? 16. It's 16. So, you know, there are four South Asians from what I understand, and you're the only one from India. And, see, now, the thing is, in net, India is, I mean, India is one of the challenging countries in that, okay, our per capita emissions may be low, but in net, we are pretty high. And, you know, this onus on all our coal plants and their emissions are a major, you know, a, a, of global concern, you know, there are arguments both ways for it. So don't you think that given the prominence that India has as being a major emitter, isn't India a bit underrepresented in the, uh, you know, in the, in the, com in the, in the committee or is the, is the, are developing world countries adequately rep represented or will developing countries be held to the same 
standards as developed countries would the same tensions that are there in groups in you know ncop negotiations would it also kind of boil down in you know in your in, in, you know in the way this committee is envisaged or the way that you plan to take this accounting process forward so i mean jacob as a uh, just one small correction there are only three asians rather than south asians there are only three asians in the expert group and uh, i'm the only one from south asia but there is jao shiachan who was uh, the former governor of the people's bank of china and miyake kauri uh, from japan um, and myself uh, we are the only three asians so i i i think by the composition of course it is this is a decision of the secretary general but at the composition clearly we are not aiming for you know complete representation of all countries otherwise then it would be again 195 196 member group and therefore that should also be the signal that we are not coming to the table only as citizens of a particular country or holders of a particular passport the composition of the group is geographically and on gender basis balanced and i think what we we'll have to look at here is that our lived experience will of course be different i mean i live in india and and my understanding of not just india but accents across the world would probably be different from someone who lives somewhere else etc so we are not here mandated by our national governments to negotiate so to speak but i think the diversity itself will bring some amount of differentiated approaches in how even subnational action or non state actions are considered how they are evaluated so i i, I cannot predict whether there will be disagreement or di- debate or 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 a reflection of what happens in formal climate negotiations i think the mandate is very clear that there is there are many new sources of climate action and we need to have a framework by which that can be captured and then we need to translate it into international frameworks so that those that have already committed and those that have not yet committed can get on to a similar approach towards looking at their own low carbon pathway so now just uh, think gears a bit and coming to the you know to the recent ipcc report now this is the working group 3 report i mean from what are your initial observations you know from you know from what you have read i mean does it does it say something really new that has not been said before or what do you think are the key messages that this particular report is putting out now well first of all it's a stark reminder of when you say what we already knew there there might be people like you who follow this closely might might be within that subset of people who are who are already aware but it requires constant reminding that we are on an unsustainable pathway that compared to the 1.5 degrees you know aspiration or the well below 2 degrees aspiration under the paris agreement the world is on track for somewhere in the order of 2.4 to 3.5 degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels by 2100 but what is also important to recognize which is often forgotten is that in order to bring it onto that sustainable pathway the space is shrinking so if we had to have a 50% chance of staying within 1.5 degrees the remaining carbon budget is 500 gigatons of carbon dioxide whereas if we wanted to have a 67% chance of staying within 2 degrees 
there is 1150 gigatons of carbon dioxide now take a pick i think the point is not about just choosing a single number but about the the range of actions that aren't going to be needed some of the new things or newer things that have become more explicitly uh, stated in the report is of course on one this this juncture between slowing of emissions growth and yet increasing absolute emissions this past decade we've had a massive increase the most the highest amount of emissions that have been put into the atmosphere and on a decadal basis ever and yet we know that the growth rate of emissions has dropped from 2.1% per year between 2000 and 2009 to 1.3% per year in the last decade obviously even a smaller percentage on a larger base means you're putting out more and more emissions into the atmosphere the other thing that came out very interestingly is that there are about 24 countries that have reduced their ter- territorial carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions on a consumption based emissions in absolute terms for the last 10 for at least last 10 years which means that it is possible to have that kind of a pathway but of course this will require you know much more effort from from many others the last big message i would say and that that for me is something that requires a lot more thinking from a governance point of view is that carbon dioxide removal is now almost necessary to in order to stay within the net zero ambitions that the world has set for itself okay you mean by carbon capture kind of capture technologies so to say no this is different so carbon capture happens at the source of the emissions so at a say a power plant or a steel plant or a cement plant carbon dioxide removal means the emission concentrations that are there in the atmosphere already that is brought down so you're sucking carbon out of the atmosphere that itself is a spectrum of technologies it could be forests and natural kind of sinks but it could also be what is called enhanced weathering there are certain kind of rocks that are able to absorb better it could be what is called ocean iron fertilization ocean increasing ocean alkalinization to be able to increase the absorptive capacity of oceans or it could be mechanical techniques such as direct air capture now these these technologies are still under development but more importantly the governance mechanisms for them are missing so this will be a major issue from a scientific basis the ipcc is saying that you can't get to net zero without without carbon dioxide removal and then a governance conundrum that says or that that show that highlights the complete lack of a current framework to define and understand and monitor and regulate carbon dioxide removal so that means uh, that india also now has to i mean okay we've got you know we have commitments to increase forestry etc but we, there's really no conversation you know about you know about direct air capture on etc so does this mean that india too has to now seriously consider these technological pathways and fund in fund research in these on these lines is that what follows from this i would argue that yes india has to and i've written about this before that india uh, should be thinking about greenhouse gas removal as uh, an important area of research simply because you know the the equations don't add up otherwise you can't get to by definition net zero 
means that you're not zero. Means that you're trying to negate some of the extra emissions that you can't completely eliminate. And you're negating it by removing carbon from the atmosphere. Now, how you will do that, whether it will be through natural sinks or whether you will do it through mechanical or engineered processes, that is something that requires serious thinking and, and, and effort. Yeah. But the, you know, this report does have some things to say about coal. I mean, it does say that, you know, coal plants without carbon capture are, are an absolute no-no. But whereas... India's policy is that, yes, we are shifting to, uh, we will shift to uh, greener parts, but, you know, coal plants will remain. So how does how does one resolve this? Because this, to me, this seems, India's stand, whether it's IPCC report 1, 2 or 3, continues to be the same because the answers are always in the language of equity, uh, etc. and developmental justice, which is uh, important. But, you know, now that the working group 3 is saying that, you know, you have, even if you have, plants which absolutely require CCS, do you think this can spur the government in, you know, to consider them or is that not going to ever happen? So again, before I respond to your question, just to clarify that the carbon dioxide removal is different from CCS. And of course, the IPCC report talks about both. But now let's come to the CCS point, you know, as the IPCC report says that if you don't have CCS, uh, then coal consumption would have to fall by 67 to 82% by 2030 globally. Now, even in terms, even in the context of India, for instance, some of the modeling work that we have done here at CEW, we have looked at scenarios where you have CCS and you don't have CCS. Because again, these are technologies that have to be still commercialized at scale and proven to be effective. Now, to give you one example, if we had CCS, we would be, Looking at, uh, by for our net zero targets, we would need about 5,600 gigawatts of solar power by 2070. But if we did not have CCS, then the solar capacity would have to be over 7,000 gigawatts. Now, that just demonstrates the kind of transition that is needed to, to get to those long-term targets, which brings us to the immediate run. I would actually disagree with you that India's position is the same across all the IPCC reports. I think India's commitments and actions over the last... I mean, just the six assessment. I mean, not the whole, right, from one, just the six assessment. Yes, well, the I, uh, the, first, the working group one report came out before India made its commitments in, in Glasgow. And then the second and third working groups have brought out the reports subsequently. I would argue that in, in India's case... The trajectory does show that, you know, there is a continued near-term use of coal in, in, in the power sector and in industry. But there are two aspects to this. One is, how do we use more and more efficient coal or efficient plants that, 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 that use less coal? Which means then you are burning less coal, emitting less emissions while generating the same amount of, of energy. So the combination of efficient or increasingly efficient thermal power along with renewables while decommissioning or accelerated decommissioning or of inefficient plants has to be one part of the story. The second part of the story has to be about, you know, experimenting with CCS technologies for, to ensure that, you know, even the plants that are in operation are able to abate the emissions. The third aspect here is actually on the industrial fuel side. 
that's where india has to start investing in this decade in the technologies of the future even though those technologies might get commercialized and at scale in the subsequent decades but if you wait until 2030 or 2035 to say get on to greener industrial processes we might lose a we might miss a technological bus so that is why the green hydrogen mission is a very very important component of of an evolved indian approach towards towards climate action because you're going beyond just the increasing share of renewables in the electricity mix to thinking about what are the alternatives to industrial fuels because if we can't make substitute for coal uh, with other greener fuel for say steel steel manufacturing we are the second largest steel producer in the world if we can't think of alternative fuels for fertilizers for manufacturing or for cement manufacturing then our heavy industries run the risk of uh, both you know continuing to emit large amounts in terms of greenhouse gases but also missing out on emerging technologies and you know responding to changing market conditions in the global markets in terms of what kind of products and process standards will be permitted so i think from a strategic perspective india start, needs to start thinking about these alternative technologies and start investing in them through public private partnerships through technology co development between india and other partners in other in, in other countries while upgrading the the policy signals that start shifting industry also towards more sustainable pathways another one of final question is do you think the ipcc report substantially mentions addresses the question of equity this the old sticking point that you know developed countries should be transferring much more technology and much more finance to developing countries is that i mean it is there in the report there are some mentions but you know in the in the main press release i i didn't see any major reference to this question of equity but in your reading does it make enough of does it substantiate this point significantly enough so jacob my answer to this would be that the ipcc report is demonstrating for the world what needs to be done but there is a lot of nuance that then gets hidden behind the averages right so for instance the report does say that the investments required are 3 to 6 times more than what we are getting in terms of globally in terms of uh, investments in cleaner infrastructure etc why is the investment not flowing to the countries where the the where energy consumption and energy demand is going to grow or why are these technologies that the report talks about not getting diffused fast enough i think the question about equity is not about what has to happen i think the bigger question is why it doesn't happen and i don't know if you know a scientific report can comment or should comment if, you know ultimately these are thousands of scientists and the countries that negotiate this line by line it was a report specifically on mitigation so uh, i thought that is why it... and that is why if you don't answer by for instance my own research has looked at three dozen financial initiatives uh, uh, sorry technology initiatives that we see that uh, you know why the technology diffusion does not happen i've looked at more than two dozen clean energy finance initiatives and i see very few of them do any kind of de-risking so we don't ask the why question we can insert words of about equity and we can say that there needs to be a differentiation in the pathways of different countries at different levels of development and yet 
we will not get on to a sustainable pathway because we're still not solving for the on-ground problem that money is not flowing in sufficient quantity and at the lowest cost to the very regions where the energy demand is rising, but also where the sun shines the most. We are not going to get to these new technology, whether it's greenhouse gas removal or green hydrogen, etc., unless we understand why technology diffusion does not happen in the first place. So to me, the equity question is not answered in a yes or no way. To me, it's a, the question really is, why do we constantly fail to have evidence-driven and yet just approach towards climate mitigation? And if we don't answer that why, we will remain in a cycle of uh, you know rhetoric rather than action. Thank you, Arunabha. I think this was a great speaking to you as usual. And thanks for, you know, this very wide perspective that you have thrown upon, you know, all of these questions. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it was great chatting up. Thank you so much, Jacob. Thanks for reaching out. In Focus, we'll be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.